Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. The mid-coast of Maine is full of pine forests, sleepy harbors, and craggy beaches. For Charlie Wing... This part of the state is a place of easy summers and cold winters. A few weeks ago, he was standing on the beach, looking out at an old pier and lifeguard station. In the distance, lobster boats are prowling the mouth of the Kennebec River. Charlie remembers one blustery September afternoon when he and his son Chaz drove here. It was storming that day, and it was colder than this. You know, it was not exactly a nice day, but this place has always kind of calmed me, and it seemed... At the time, like, there was a storm inside Chaz. And I just wanted to try to talk to him and find out what was going on. It was five years ago. Chaz was 13, just starting eighth grade and in crisis. He was barely passing his classes, and he was talking about suicide. Charlie knew other kids were bullying his son at school, but not a lot more than that. We started walking, and I just couldn't quite get... I didn't understand the depth of, of what had been happening to him. I was like, well, they're bullies. you got to stand up to them. You know, uh, I've been bullied, and I was trying to give him the father-son. You know, you just got to be a man and stand up to them. And, and he was like, hmm. Charlie and Chaz slowly made their way up the beach. And I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere with him. After a mile, they turned around. Then Chaz stopped in the sand. Just standing there looking out at the water and the... the waves and the wind coming at him and stuff and he he said uh, do you mind if I go in the water and I wasn't sure what I thought because he threatened to commit suicide several times Chaz rolled up his pants took off his shoes and socks and placed them neatly on the beach his father stared after him wondering if he'd have to rescue his son he walked out kind of up to his knees and he started, like, yelling at the sky, uh, listen to me, listen to me. And I didn't know what it meant, but he said it four or five times. All I understood was I, I think that I'm dealing with a problem that's larger than I really understand. At the time, I, I, I just didn't know... I just, at the time, I didn't know there had been a sexual assault. Before we go any further, you should know that's what our show is about today. Sexual assault among school kids. It's an issue that isn't appropriate for all listeners. Often, when you hear about students being abused at school, it involves adults, teachers, coaches, or other staff. But the Associated Press investigated these cases for a year and found something surprising. For every one child abused by an adult at school, seven are abused by their peers. We're teaming up with the AP on today's show. They also found that many of these cases go unreported. People don't like to talk about this stuff. It was like that with Chaz Wing. He hid his abuse and pain for a long time. But he talked to Associated Press reporter Robin McDowell about it. She brings us his story. From his first days at Brunswick Junior High School, Chaz remembers being bullied. He tells me boys would corner him at his locker, taunt him. In the halls, they'd bump him. 
In class, they'd play jokes. I think they picked on me because of my weight, the type of music I listened to, my interests, the way I, I acted, anything that wasn't completely cookie-cutter, a middle school boy attitude. Chaz is 18 now, but he's always been a quirky kid. His dark brown mullet hangs to his shoulders. He collects old records, cassettes, eight-track tapes. Instead of sports and video games, he started an analog club at school. He's, he's, um, he's an interesting kid. This is his mother, Amy, blonde, blue-eyed. She's a nurse who's passionate about her work and her two sons. She split up with Charlie when Chaz was in the fifth grade. She says when Chaz entered junior high, he was considered gifted and talented. Within a year, though, his grades started slipping, and he'd come home feeling confused and upset. Why are the why are the kids mean? Why are they mean to me? At first, I was like, well, you know, they have problems at home. They're just picking on you to make themselves feel better. If you ignore them, they'll stop. Chaz tried to ignore the bullying, but it got a lot more personal. There was the thing that they called the gay test. Can you tell me about it? The gay test was when they lightly put their hand on your shoulder, and if you didn't notice it and batted away in under 10 seconds, they uh, they would declare that you are gay um, and you must have enjoyed it, and that's why you didn't knock their hand away. Um, it was very uncomfortable. I definitely had to watch over my shoulder quite a bit. Uh, it, it would happen inside and out of school, and... I didn't feel like I had any privacy. Like a lot of schools around the country, Brunswick Junior High had a policy against bullying. Chaz remembers anti-bullying assemblies and posters. If you see something, say something. So he did. He complained so many times, some teachers labeled him a nuisance. The bullying got so bad, his mom Amy says she marched into Principal Walter Wallace's office several times. He told her he'd speak to the boys and their parents. At first, he seemed like he was interested. I, I trusted that he would follow through and look into everything. You know, they kept saying that they were, were handling it. Amy says Wallace didn't live up to his promises. It's so beautiful and uh, just the salt air. Something about the sea. Ever since he was a kid, Charlie Wing liked coming here to Popham Beach. It's a half-hour drive from Brunswick. I don't mind getting a little bit wet. Charlie Wing looks like a biker with a graying, shaggy beard. He works at a big retailer and dresses like a drummer in a rock band. That's what he does for fun. On a blustery September day when he brought Chaz here, Charlie says it felt like a movie. And we're getting blasted in the face with a little bit of rain and him just yelling at the at the wind, you know, yelling out at the furies of the, the powers that be, I suppose, you know. I'll never forget that. I'll never, just that, that this is a big deal and I need to really start paying more attention. Chaz didn't tell his dad anything then, but he was about to open up. It started after Amy met with a group of his teachers. Chaz was refusing to go to school. The teachers wanted to get him back into class. But they told Amy that Chaz needed to meet with them. So she headed home and told him. And he said, no, I can't go. I said, Chaz, you have to. They want you to be at that meeting. And he grabbed the pillow on the bed and started holding it and was rocking back and forth, and he said, no, I can't go. And I said, you have to. And he said, Mom, no, I can't. They're going to hurt me. And I said, Chaz, you have to tell me what is going on. And he just kept saying, they're going to hurt me. They hurt me. I can't go back. And finally, I, I told him, I said, if you don't tell me, I can't help you. We can't fix this. I need to know what's going on. You have to tell me. And then, and that's when he told me, started telling me everything. Chaz told Amy something had happened to him at school, back in the seventh grade. He says some of the same boys who'd been bullying him sexually assaulted him. 
Later, Chaz gave more details under oath. He said some boys grabbed him in a school bathroom and raped him three different times. Chaz told me he didn't talk about this with anyone for months because he was ashamed and afraid. They threatened to um, hurt my my family and pets. Uh, they threatened to hurt me. They, they cut my arm, I, which I still have a scar from. They threatened to burn our house down. On the one hand, it all it all made sense. On the other hand, I, I didn't want to believe it. I couldn't believe it. I had never in a million years thought school was where it was. Amy Wing reported to the school what Chaz told her about the sexual assaults. Principal Wallace led an investigation, but left the job of interviewing Chaz to his vice principal. The Brunswick police also investigated. The man in charge... He was also the school resource officer at Brunswick Junior High. If Chaz was telling the truth, then the assaults happened on their watch. The investigations wrapped up in about a month. The Brunswick Police Department and the school district determined there was no credible evidence to support Chaz's allegations, even though a state psychologist found strong evidence that Chaz was sexually abused. I don't think people want to believe it happens, that sexual assault happens amongst children. Courtney Beer is someone Amy Wing turned to for help. She's a staff attorney with Pine Tree, a nonprofit that offers free legal aid. I just don't think people want to acknowledge that it exists. And the discouraging part is that there is no way to track the numbers. Courtney says she believes Chaz was telling the truth. It became more real to her when she walked through Brunswick Junior High with him as she looked into the case. You could see... Chaz's raw sense of emotion when he had to walk into the bathrooms where the assaults had occurred. And um, things were, memories were coming back to him as he walked through the school and he was disclosing details that he had not reported previously because he was remembering them as we were there. In 2015, the Wings filed a lawsuit claiming the district had violated Chaz's civil rights by not doing enough to stop the bullying and abuse the state's Human Rights Commission joined them. School officials wouldn't talk to us, but they had to talk to Chaz's lawyers. We obtained hours of video depositions that were part of the lawsuit. Good morning again, Mr. Wallace. Could you uh, spell your full name for the record? Uh, Walter Wallace, W-A-L-T-E-R. In one deposition, attorney David Webber questions Principal Walter Wallace. He says other kids did bully Chaz from time to time, and the school dealt with it. He also says he couldn't verify a lot of what Chaz had to say. Well, there were a lot of reports about things that we could not substantiate. Um, There was this hypersensitivity to any look, uh, any movement, any (coughs) rushing in the hallway. He tells the court that some of Chaz's problems with other students were his own fault. Chaz is very opinionated. Um, He likes what he likes. If you don't agree with him on things, he gets irritated with you and some arrogance. Then they get into the sexual assault allegations. Wallace said he had trouble believing Chaz's story because he didn't think the attacks could have happened in the small bathroom stalls. And he believed what the other boys had to say. One student's reaction was um, the student didn't have no idea what even we were talking about. He had no frame of reference for anal sex. He was bewildered. He was confused. The other students immediately were shaking their head. No, that never happened. I wouldn't do that. Why would I do that? Did you ever interview Chaz Wing about his allegations of sexual assault? I did not. In hindsight, should you have spoken directly to Chaz Wing? I could have. I don't. Um, I was confident in the notes that were taken. This was a sensitive case. Um, We were trying to do this as quickly and as efficiently and complete as possible. Did you ever go back to Chaz Wing with any of the information you obtained in the interviews to ask him to explain your concerns about plausibility or credibility of his allegations? No. Did you consider doing that? 
Um, not that I remember. There's something else Walter Wallace didn't do. He never made a written report. He just told the school superintendent about his findings. Did you write any of this down? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Was this an important judgment you were making? Sure. In hindsight, should you have written your analysis down? I think it would be helpful right now. And could you start by telling us your name? Uh, Chaz Wing, Charles Wing. In his deposition, Chaz wears a black dress shirt and gray tie. He looks composed. Attorney Melissa Huey questions him for eight hours over two days. At one point, she brings up the times other boys would gently touch his shoulder, the so-called gay test. And why were you concerned that people might think you were gay? Because it was uh, taboo. It was frowned upon by the majority of students at the school there. Attorney Courtney Beer attended many of the depositions. It certainly felt to me that he, that the district was seeking to somehow blame him for his involvement and for part of what happened. His sexuality was um, a topic of question, and that was something that the teachers had also asked him when he was in school as to whether or not he was gay, and if he wasn't, then why would it really matter if he was being called gay? Do you recall um, complaining to anybody at Brunswick Junior High School that two male students told you, I love you? Yes. Do you remember whether you were offended by that or not? I was. Why would you be offended by that? Objection. The tone of voice is really out of touch with reality. You can't object to tone of yes, voice. Yes, yes, I can. Can you you're answer not, my you're question? Not supposed to be, you're, you ask questions, you don't comment on answers. And, it, it, and your suggestion is contrary to the way the world works, and so it, I don't understand how you can have a good faith basis for suggesting that a middle school boy is not going to be upset by that comment. Could you please repeat the question? Why did it upset you that someone said, I love you? Because I... Uh, I did not uh, think it was appropriate for another male student to love me. I didn't have, I didn't see any reason for them to say they loved me. Later I asked Chaz if he thought the way the attorney questioned him felt like another kind of gay test. Yes. Yes, definitely. I believe they were trying to uh, solicit a, a more aggressive, angry response from me, trying to make me seem belligerent. The school's attorney spends hours taking Chaz through each alleged assault in graphic detail. He describes how, on one occasion, two boys held him in the bathroom stall and raped him. Okay. Then what happened? I uh, cleaned myself up, and I, and I went back to class. You went out to class? Mm-hmm. Did you tell anyone about this? No. And why not? Because I was afraid that I would be in danger if I did. After the depositions wrapped up, Chaz and his family felt a rush of emotions. It was painful for them to relive all the things Chaz says he went through. They were angry. Chaz says he also felt some relief that it was almost over. Within a few weeks, the two sides moved toward a settlement. The district agreed to pay $125,000. After legal fees, Chaz got $50,000. The district also promised to improve the way it tracks allegations of bullying. But what Chaz wanted most of all was an apology from the school district. There would be none. We're going to follow this road all the way to the end of it. Recently, I took a drive around Brunswick with Chaz. It's an old mill town, population 20,000. Down to the right is the back way to get to the Goodwill, one of my favorite places to go shopping. We pass the weekend flea market where he sells some of the old electronics he collects. Back at home, Chaz leads me down into his basement. It's packed with stuff he's collected since he was little. 
stuff you can't seem to let go of. Got the Selectivision RCA VCR here. I have a Betamax VCR there, a CED player. This is where um, everything that's too good for the flea market stays, everything I want to keep in my own collection. So that is, that is a 1924 RCA with photophone audio capabilities. I like preserving the history. I like being able to access any tape, any disc that comes my way, be able to see what's on it, not just be left wondering, could this be footage of my parents or grandparents taking their first steps? To Chaz, being able to tell a story that was trapped inside him is a bit like bringing these flickering images back to life. Now he just wants to move on. He just finished high school. He says he might stay in Brunswick and find a job or go away to college. Sometimes he just wants to hop on a bicycle and ride all the way down to Florida, where his grandparents live. Chaz says he hopes his decision to go public will help others who face bullying and sexual violence in school. He says he'd be willing to forgive the boys if they apologize to him. He doesn't feel that way about the Brunswick school officials. They are all adults. They, they knew, know full well what their actions mean. And one of their jobs is protecting the students. They were accepting taxpayer money for something they weren't doing. I don't think that they should still be in charge of a school district. reached out to Brunswick School District. They wouldn't talk to us, but just before we wrapped up the story, the attorney for the school district, Melissa Huey, sent the Associated Press a statement. In it, she said one reason the district settled was to protect the boys that Chaz accused from a public trial. She called them the real victims. Thanks to the Associated Press's Robin McDowell for this story. It was produced by Michael Montgomery. When we come back, we'll have more about the scope of AP's reporting on sexual assault among kids. You're listening to Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up... How White Christians Built and Maintained Confederate Monuments Across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch Season 2 wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home, With easy online ordering and free shipping, Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. A reminder that today's show deals with child sexual assault, an important topic, but one that isn't for all listeners. Before the break, we heard the story of Chaz Wing. He settled a lawsuit with the school district over allegations that other students bullied and raped him at his junior high. His story is a part of an Associated Press investigation into sexual violence at school. Two of those reporters are with me now, Reese Dunklin and Emily Schmall. So, Reese, this investigation is a really heavy subject. And as a father with two kids in school, it was shocking to me. I mean, I don't think I thought about these type of assaults happening, at least not on the scale that you guys reported on. Yeah, I'm a father of a first grader myself. 
And I think you, other parents, me, we all believe when we send our little ones off to school that there are so many adults around, they're going to be kept safe. And over a recent four-year period, we found roughly 17,000 cases. Rape, sodomy, sexual assault with an object, forced fondling, these are severe. We did not track consensual sex among teens. This is the serious stuff. We also know that academic studies estimate it's significantly higher. Those who are sexually assaulted don't immediately report if they report at all. And schools across the country don't face a national requirement to track and disclose these cases. Emily, let me ask you, what happens when this kind of thing is discovered? Typically, how do schools react? What schools are supposed to do when this happens is they're supposed to, first of all, take this really, really seriously. According to Supreme Court rulings and the U.S. Department of Education, conduct a prompt and thorough investigation, keep the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator apart, take an honest assessment of whether the alleged victim is has been subjected to what they say is a hostile environment. Unfortunately, we found lots of cases in which schools haven't responded this way. They haven't conducted impartial, thorough investigations. Sometimes they'll bring both the alleged victim and the alleged offender into you know, the principal's office and just say, okay, what happened here? Often, unfortunately, kids who report this stuff to administrators are disciplined. So they're suspended or they're expelled or they're just forced to transfer to another school because the schools won't accommodate them in a way that allows them to go to school without being terrified of an assault happening again. You also reported on how hazing of school athletes can lead to these kind of sexual assaults. And this is where language is really important because calling it hazing, officials aren't taking it as seriously as they should. Why aren't school districts and law enforcement calling it what it is? That's a good question. I, I, I think part of it is people think if you're part of a group and you're the new member, you're going to undergo some some razzing from, from the veterans. You hear it a lot in sports. So I think that's why people use the term hazing for what we saw in our investigation. And what we saw is upperclassmen athletes forcibly holding down the younger boys and doing some pretty, pretty rough things. I mean, we're, we're talking about for sodomy, it's not wanted, and under many penal codes, it's potentially a, a felony or at the very least, you know, misdemeanor sexual battery. And experts are telling me because we're getting the language wrong, because we're calling it bullying, we're calling it harassment, we're calling it hazing, we're not really addressing the root cause of the problem here. And the school districts, they would tell the public it's uh, inappropriate physical contact when they knew there was an allegation of sexual assault. So how does the public understand and know what's going on inside the locker rooms if we don't stop using the word hazing for it? But as a parent, if your child is a victim of sexual abuse, what recourse do you really have? First would be a criminal investigation. The downside there is that in these sorts of cases where the victim doesn't immediately come forward, you know, with the passage of time, memories fade and evidence is lost. So in the cases we've examined, there's not always criminal charges. The next recourse would be filing a complaint with the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. That's the office that handles violations of the federal law known as Title IX. That's the anti-discrimination law that the education department has been using to investigate, and they've used that as the tool to remediate any sexual violence at schools. Another recourse is the civil courts. But from what legal experts say, there are very high legal hurdles to get the right to sue a public school district. So you reported on the Office for Civil Rights, and through them, the Obama administration did a lot of outreach to let people know they could file these complaints. But that sort of backfired because they weren't able to handle them all. About half of those complaints have been resolved. How's the Trump administration handling this? 
going forward, it doesn't seem like the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights is going to be as aggressive as it was under the Obama administration. The victims' rights advocacy groups say they're going to push really hard to make sure that the government continues to enforce Title IX in sexual assault cases, but there has definitely been a strong and consistent opposition from members of the Republican Party and some conservative activist groups to dismantle this guidance and really to take away the government's ability to step in on student-on-student sexual assault cases. How do we as the public uh, force these institutions to be accountable for their actions? Well, these are public schools, and you're the taxpayer, and there's a federal law on the books, Title IX, that demands a good investigation by the schools, and it, it demands other actions on the part of schools. So as members of the public, we can be at the school board and we can ask for more questions. And in fairness to the schools, they do have certain confidentiality laws they have to think about for the students. These are juveniles. But in a number of cases we've looked at, there are basic facts, basic details they could be given the public so that parents like you, Al, can keep your kids safe and so that you can make good choices and you can talk to your children about what they might face when they go to school. That's Reese Dunklin and Emily Schmall with the Associated Press. Thanks for coming in and helping spread the word about all this. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So how can you get a school to pay attention to this kind of violence? We go to one school in Oklahoma where students made that happen. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. This hour, we're teaming up with our partners at the Associated Press on a really unsettling topic, sexual assault among kids. This show is not appropriate for all listeners. Now, when you hear these stories, you think, what can we do? Well, Reveal's Catherine Miskowski visited one school in Oklahoma where students found a way to fight back. It's Thursday afternoon at Norman High School, and students are rushing to class. I'm plastered up against a locker as the crowds surge by. The weekend's coming, and students are making plans. By Monday, photos and videos passed around will fuel the week's gossip. That's one way what happens off campus can become the school's problem. I think there was a time, maybe 30 years ago, where you'd say, well, you know, that happened on Saturday. We're not in school on Saturday. It's not really our concern. Those days are gone. That's District Superintendent Joe Siano. About two and a half years ago, something happened off campus after a weekend party that changed the school. This next part is pretty disturbing. A male student didn't just rape a girl. He shot video during the assault and circulated it. And then she just received a lot of ridicule for that. That's Danielle Brown, who was a sophomore at the time. The school suspended the attacker for the rest of the academic year. But his friends were still at Norman. And the video was still out there. The victim felt bullied. After one student hassled her and she fought back, the school suspended her. She ended up transferring to another school. The assault and its aftermath disgusted Danielle. She is the same age as me, so I mean, knowing that that could have been me or any of, like, anybody else. Danielle is hardly your classic activist. I mean, I am a very quiet person, a very introverted person. But she and her friends wanted to protest, to support the victim, and demand their school do more for students who'd been assaulted. I was the one that knew that we probably needed adults with us because, I mean, I was 15 at the time. It was a bunch of sophomores and juniors. She got in touch with Stacy Wright, her aunt, who lives blocks from Norman High. Stacy's first move was to activate her feminist knitting circle. A group of women that get together and work on crafts and just talk about our lives and the ills of the world and support each other. And Danielle often shows up at those meetings, too. And I 
uh, told her to invite the young woman and her mother to Knitting Circle and to have them, you know, just come and if they wanted to, to share their story and we would figure out what to do. We uh, got together that night and I don't think that any of us were even really prepared for the horror of what this young woman had been through. Plans for the protest started to shape up. The students figured they'd go to school, then a few minutes into first hour, walk out. They came up with the hashtag, YesAllDaughters, to represent the idea that assault could happen to any of them. That turned out to be true. More girls from Norman High School came forward. Teens who said the same student had attacked them, too. His name was Tristan Kilman Harden. They had been isolated and bullied out. That's Danielle Brown again. And they hadn't been going to school, and they hadn't been getting any support. Until the protests got going. As soon as I saw the Yes All Daughters walk out thing on Facebook, I couldn't hold it in anymore. That's Harper, not her real name. She says Tristan assaulted her too. It happened in a restroom on campus, she remembers. They'd been dating, but they broke up after Tristan got violent. He started spreading rumors about me, sending pictures around of me that I didn't even know were taken of me. Then the bullying started. I ended up getting, I, I don't want to say I got jumped, but a girl pretty much beat me up because of all the rumors that were going around. I left the school right after that. I didn't go back. I felt like I couldn't go back. Harper felt isolated, ostracized even. Hearing about the protest changed that. There's going to be this walkout because this happened. And I'm like, well, that also happened to me. So maybe I should talk to somebody now. Like, it's, it's been a while. Maybe I should talk to somebody because I feel like I can talk to somebody now. The day before the walkout, the school district was on high alert. In a letter, the superintendent told parents he'd excuse absences during first hour. But he added, we do not know who will be in charge of tomorrow's event. That day, Danielle told her English teacher that she was. And I told her, I was like, I'm one of the organizers for this movement and I'm walking out today. And then I just stood up and left. And a bunch of students were with me, I think 600. Danielle's aunt, Stacy stood outside, watching students leave the building. So they walked out, and it felt like that stream of students would never end. They just kept coming and coming and coming out the door, and I was standing there with the victims, and I'm, I'm going to cry it. Oh, I'm going to cry at this point. And one of them said, I didn't think anybody cared. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Harper watched, too, as all those students walked toward her. It was probably the best feeling of my life. That just made me feel like I had, like, an even bigger group of people that were here for me. Protesters waved signs that said, transfer is not the answer, and education, not revictimization. One woman's sign read, she's my daughter. The action went on for hours. And quiet, introverted Danielle, there she was, yelling slogans into a bullhorn. With her mother and aunt, she delivered a list of demands to the principal of Norman High. Later that day, Harper and Tristan's other victims bonded, away from the crowds and the signs and the news cameras. After the protest, I feel like everyone just kind of felt like they could let it go for a minute. We all went to go get our nails done together, and all of us girls like to sing, and so we're just sitting in the nail salon, we're all singing, and the ladies are like, come on, let's do it. <laughs> You're so good. The walkout even inspired one protester to compose an anthem. Hey, honey, hey. It was a time when we really wanted to say something, to step out and say, we are making a statement. That's Sophia Babb. Her twin sister Grace wrote the song, and they perform it together in their band, Annie Oakley. Hey, honey, don't you 
Eventually, Tristan Kilman Harden went to prison for the rape that sparked the walkout. Three of his victims sued the school district, claiming it displayed deliberate indifference to plaintiffs' rights to a public education. They settled. This spring, I met school superintendent Joe Siano at his office. It was almost the end of his last semester before he'll retire. He says what happened at Norman High taught the district a lot. Most importantly, that when sexual violence happens, schools should always remember this. A student was traumatized regardless of all of the issues around it, and you have to deal with the trauma first. The district created new full-time positions to do just that, the student advocacy coordinators. At both of our high schools and now expanded to our middle schools. The advocates make sure students who've been victims of sexual assault, trauma, harassment, or bullying get the help they need. The students are using the advocates. The high schools are probably two of our busiest positions. Every day they're busy. Problems still happen. I don't know that any district can be held accountable to make sure nothing ever happens. I think you have to mitigate and minimize these things. In 2016, another case shook the school district. Two boys reported that teammates sexually assaulted them on a wrestling team trip. The victims were 16 and 12 at the time. One of their parents sued the district. I think the things that we learned from the other situation played out exactly the way they should in that. The primary focus was the students who came forward and were victimized, and then we dealt with all the other pieces after that. I asked Harper how she felt when she heard about the wrestling team. Even though the whole situation was terrible, it kind of eased my mind a little bit to know, like, they're going to be able to talk to someone, and they're going to be able to find help, and this isn't something that's just under the rug anymore. Like, yes, all daughters made it easier for them to talk about what had happened to them. That piece was reported and produced by Catherine Muskowski, and she joins me in the studio now. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Al. So in Norman, there was a crisis, and the school district actually reacted to that. The, The question I had is, Do you think that the school district would have done anything if the kids hadn't done the protests? You know, I think that's really impossible to say, but I think we can give the students a lot of credit for putting this issue on the absolute top of the agenda. Because they did this walkout, they showed that this was really important to hundreds of students, and the administrators responded to that. As good as it was, that was actually reactive, though, right? Like, the violence had to happen, and this is the aftermath and response to it. But you've gone out and talked to some schools that are actually trying to get ahead of it. There are some school districts in Oregon that are trying to approach this really in a different way. Instead of being focused so much on the victim, they're actually trying to prevent the violence in the first place. And the way they're attempting to do that is by identifying kids who have some kind of troubling sexual behavior that they're exhibiting at school. And I went to uh, Newport, Oregon, to try to find out more about these efforts. I know, I know. I'm at a beachfront Best Western. But where I am, there's no view of the waves. In a windowless conference room with people who work with juvenile sex offenders. From around the state, they've come for presentations on topics like sexual consent, a multidimensional approach. This talk is about pornography addiction. You know, I remember when I was like 13 years old, my cousins and I found a Playboy. Wilson Kenny leads the session. It was like, oh my God, this is amazing, you know, and it was like like a sacred document. We'd pass it from one, you know, and this is a thing that like I treasured for years and... uh, And it's so different now, right? Because you can go online and not just find, like, a Playboy, but, like, you can find the most... Wilson's a father of four and a psychologist. For an expert in sexual misconduct, he's surprisingly optimistic. He has a disarming ability to talk without getting embarrassed about topics many of us would prefer not to think about. Here's the title of his book, Sexual Misconduct in Children. Wilson thinks schools can do more to identify kids early on who have problems with their sexual behavior. He's helped some school districts in Oregon do that. 
At his porn talk, a school psychologist from one of those districts pipes up. Shelly. I have some anecdotal information about that. Oh, good. Okay. But the problem is we're seeing a lot of issues in the high schools of kids sharing information because they think like, hey, isn't this cool? Look at this photo of my girlfriend. Performing a sex act. And yet, it's not necessarily in their mind to do harm because they're like, hey, buddy, look at what, right. look what, you know, like, cool, look at me. That's Shelly Rutledge with Salem-Kaiser School District, about 50 miles south of Portland. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the modern, I think about like, you know, having been an adolescent male, it's the locker room talk of like, hey, you won't believe what happened last night, only now there's a photo. Yeah. I never did that, by the way, either. But I knew guys. The sex act selfie is a new wrinkle on an old problem for schools. How to handle concerning sexual behavior. The kind of stuff that makes adults cringe. Can you talk about, like, how have schools dealt with these kinds of behaviors in the past? Uh, generally through freaking out. Most commonly what happens is people just want to sweep things under the rug, right? I, I, I used to joke, if I could teach administrators to say penis and vagina comfortably, I'd be out of work because really a lot of it is, is being able to be comfortable having a sexual discussion with a family and a child about something that's going on. It, it's hard. It is. Still, Wilson advises school officials to respond to this behavior frankly and systematically starting as early as elementary school. Most inappropriate sexual behavior uh, that occurs like prior to age 13, most of that is not going to be picked up by the criminal justice system. And so what that means is that a lot of concerning sexual behaviors are just not being addressed by anyone anywhere. At this point, you're probably thinking, elementary school, come on. Little kids do inappropriate things because they don't know what's appropriate yet. Let's say you've got a kindergartner who is, uh, you know, rubbing their genitals against a desk chair. That's a pretty common thing you run into in, in kindergartens. If a teacher tells the child that's not okay and the kid stops doing it, problem solved. But what if... You've said, please knock it off, and the behavior continues. That's when you really have a problem. Wilson figures a school district with 40,000 kids may face 150 to 200 cases a year like this, that require a more calculated response. That means more than disciplining the child or phoning home. Wilson's approach activates a whole team to try and figure out what's going on. The biggest fear that parents have when they come into those meetings is that someone is going to tell them their child is a pedophile, right? It's hor horrifying to think about that, right? And, and that doesn't occur in those meetings, and that's not the purpose of those meetings. The purpose, he says, is to better understand the behavior and figure out how to keep it from happening again. That might mean more supervision for this student, on the playground, in the hallways, in the bathroom. Ideally, this would protect other students from future harassment or abuse, the school district from liability, and the kid in trouble from being labeled an offender. The Forest Grove School District outside Portland started using Wilson's approach in January. Administrators on the district's Sexual Incident Response Committee gather in a conference room for a monthly okay. meeting. They didn't confirm, um, but usually I'm, a, I'm assuming Vicki will be here because of... This is what they call a level two meeting, where the team deals with more serious cases and includes outside experts. I'm hoping that Vicki shows up um, because of the case that I want to review today. Right, right. So. To protect the privacy of the students involved, the committee wouldn't let us sit in on most of this meeting. But in an interview, one member told us how it's going. I think it's changed the way that we as administrators view sexualized behavior. Tammy Erian is an assistant principal at Forest Grove High School. I feel like it's uh, taken the burden of investigating and thoroughly processing those situations off of just one individual. Administrators say they're happy to share that burden. There is no denying it can be tough to talk with parents about this stuff especially if their child has done something to another child. I think you can have that conversation in a very caring way with parents to say, you know, this is really an opportunity for us to provide support for your son or daughter. It's not just about protecting the victim. It's really about providing supports for the student, the offender. Tammy says figuring out what the right supports are means asking a lot of uncomfortable questions. We ask uh, parents if 
the students have ever been exposed to, you know, highly sexual behavior in their past? Has there, have they ever witnessed or been, you know, sexually abused, domestic violence in the home? Um, we'll ask about if they've ever seen their child um, use coercion uh, to get what they want. Then the team tailors a plan to fit the offense that may be as simple as making sure a teacher keeps an eye on a student's screen. This is a pretty common one. Uh, students who are you know, inappropriately accessing pornography, uh, we have to have teachers um, always in view of what a student is, is viewing. Or the plan can be more elaborate, like making sure a victim and an offender are not in the same classes. In Forest Grove, it's too early to know if the new approach is working. Honestly, the public may never know. People of every age underreport sexual harassment and assault. Plus, school districts closely guard information about sexual misbehavior because minors and the district's reputation are involved. Nobody wants to be the Sandy Hook of sexual misconduct. How would you judge the effectiveness of the approach? Here's Wilson Kenny again. That's really hard to do, right? Because you can't evaluate the disaster that you thwarted. There's no way to get at that, right? It's like, um, I, I think maybe the best you can do is, you know, by figuring out, you know, how many lives you're able to touch. That's more than many school districts have been willing to do. I have tried to remind people that this is nothing new. Most adults can probably remember incidents from their own childhoods that everyone just tried to pretend weren't happening. Think back to your elementary school and middle school days. We can remember the weird thing that happened at school, um, the person who seemed to have problems with their sexual behavior that no one did anything about. Um, so this isn't a problem with which we're unfamiliar. It's one we've tried to forget about because it's unpleasant. We know it's hard to hear these kinds of stories. So if you're left wondering what you can do, we've got the AP's list of suggestions on our website, revealnews.org. Michael Montgomery was our lead producer this week with producers Amy Walters and Catherine Miskowski. Sinduja Rangarajan assisted with data reporting. Our show was edited by Cheryl Duvall. Special thanks to Associated Press editor Maud Bielman and reporters Gillian Flaccus and Justin Pritchard. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen, with help from Catherine Ray Mondo. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>